Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Hi. Hey, how are you doing? Pretty good. I'm doing as good as I was a few hours ago. <laughs> but sometimes we're wearing the same clothes because sometimes we record more than one podcast, especially when we're together. That's right. We don't like to waste a lot of time. So mm-hmm. we got some fresh new things to talk about today. Uh, first of all, we do have a guest. So before we get to our chatting stuff, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Kimberly and uh, bring our listeners up to date. Okay. So Kimberly Ann Johnson actually is an author, the fourth trimester. And I took care of one of her friends recently, and she was kind enough to send me a lovely little gift. And so I followed up with her and said, thank you so much, because it came without a card. So wasn't sure if it was her. But that is a, that is funny that, that somebody you didn't take care of sent you a present. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna... without, without a card, though. Yeah, I know. That was so like, how'd you figure out it was her? Because she had said, thank you so much for taking care of my friend. I want to send you something. And so I uh, kind of thought maybe it was her. And I said, was this you? And she said, yeah. And I thought it would be great to have her on the podcast because I know a lot of people have been talking about her book. It came out a few years ago. And and so I thought it, she would be a beautiful person to bring on. Yeah. The book is actually called The Fourth Trimester, A Postpartum Guide to Healing Your Body, Balancing Your Emotions, and Restoring Your Vitality. Yeah. So we'll bring her on in just a few minutes. Before we do that, got a couple of things, though. Obviously, I know you're doing well because I've been with you all day. <laughs> but... You you, had, you told me a funny story at lunch, which I think you need to tell. And then I have a couple of uh, letters that I wanted to bring up. All right. I'll tell you. My, I'm already blushing telling the story you guys can't tell. But so I bring a peanut ball with me in my car for birth, just in case we have a longer labor and maybe like a malpositioned baby and we want to try and keep the pelvis open. And it has a fabric cover on it so that after a mom uses it, I can toss it in the laundry. And, you know, like with my sling and stuff like that, I just get come home and I throw it in the laundry. Sometimes I throw in things that need to be washed, you know? So I brought it out and this mom was really struggling with the discomfort of labor. And so we were all like hands on deck. It was kind of intense trying to keep her home. And I looked down at the floor. Her doula was with her, who's a friend of mine. And I looked down at the floor and my underwear. I just love that. Are sitting on her floor. And I, you know, uh, shyly put them in my back pocket to kind of get them out of the way. But I thought, oh my God, what if I hadn't noticed that my underwear were sitting on her floor and some random woman's panties are in their house? That would have caused him a lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. You can, I can only imagine. I can just imagine how embarrassing that is sometimes to just like see your your panties lay on. Yeah. I have to say that was the first out of birth panties. So they got stuck in the fabric thing, if you guys have, you have to always be careful when you take your stuff out of the dryer because that happens all the time. Sometimes, like I, I swear I washed like three pairs of underwear and I can only find two, and then two weeks later I'm putting on a new pair of jeans <laughs> for the drawer, and then my underwear is stuck in the leg of the jeans. It's like, oh god! <laughs> so I can imagine what it would have been like. So if, check yeah. next time I will check. All right, that's a pretty funny story. Good. So real briefly, my my cousin Mia, last name Fishbein. Mm-hmm. You met her because she came out here. She's a DO mm-hmm. and she's in uh, Chicago or in Illinois someplace doing DO school or Ohio. I think she's in Columbus, Ohio. Anyway, she got to be twin delivery where I was just leaning against the couch and mm-hmm. Lindsay caught these twins and it was a beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. 
she texted me yesterday. I hadn't heard from her in about a year. I could actually tell you exactly when. Yeah, it was May of two, oh, two years. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't heard from her in two years. Mm -hmm. And she said, she texted me excitedly. She said, I did my first in-hospital breach delivery today. Oh, cool. And I thought of you. She says, I remembered some of the techniques you taught me. My attending was impressed. Nice. Yeah, isn't that nice? So I said, I said, Mia, that's so uplifting to hear. I hope you were jazzed. Tell me a bit more about the labor. Mom's position, hands off or on. That's so cool. She says, I was so jazzed. She was unblocked, which I guess means no epidural. Mm -hmm. That's medical terminology. Yeah. Unblocked. Multip delivered in dorsal lithotomy position. Hands on with Marcel Smelly Vite maneuver to extract the head. Mm -hmm. And she said, I said, um, I said, next step will be to have mom upright. Yeah, because that was on her back for people who don't know that term. Yeah, well, she yeah. says, I wish. We didn't know she was breached until she was complete and plus three. Oh, wow. So the nurse swore she felt head with caput. So we were just like, okay, we're just going to catch head down baby. Mm -hmm. But once it was crowning or rumping, they said, so I said, so I just asked her briefly, if it was known on admission that she was breached, would they have sectioned her? And she says, unfortunately, likely. Well, good. Then, then I said, lucky error then. And she says, 100%. <laughs> Because she was a multip. Yeah. Right. So higher success. And then she was, she said she was cephalic on presentation too, like probably in the office or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, and she says weird. I said, not that weird. And I said, a good reason to always, always, always check the position of a baby in the pre-op in any mom undergoing a cesarean section for breach. Yeah. I saw the unforgivable happen once. The doctor was the chairman of the department and nothing happened. It was a gravity three para two mom who had two vaginal deliveries. He sectioned her for breach and Got in the operating room, did his surgery, and oh, oh, oh look, the baby's head down. That's terrible. And nothing happened. No. Nothing no. happened. No. Kind of like kind of like today's politicians. Nothing ever happens. Oh, I was there. thinking, I was thinking you were saying always, always check for a head down baby in surgery, just like you always want to check and make sure your panties aren't in here. <laughs> oh, that too. Yeah. That you always check. That is that's that's actually quite funny. Yeah. You always on always check. Always okay. Check. So one more thing before we bring on our guests. Okay. This is a Instagram message from Chelsea. And she goes, hi, Dr. Stewart. I'm hoping to get your advice on a labor patient I have currently. Unfortunately, I think that she texted me in the morning yesterday, and I didn't see this till last night. So it was already over. I work as a labor and delivery nurse and have a patient who is a 39.4 weeks, gravita four, para three. Her last baby was 18 months ago. She's here for an induction of labor for a large for gestational age over the 94th percentile. Mm -hmm. You know where this is going, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Patient was started on Pitocin yesterday and a, and a cook balloon, cook catheter was placed. That's like a Foley with double balloons designed for dilating the cervix. She's currently seven centimeters, 70% and minus five. Wow. Whatever that means. I don't think there is such a thing as minus five. Just floating. Yeah. Sometimes they do five, yeah. yeah. Big, big belly. Ultrasound was done to confirm presentation, which was vertex. The midwife at the hospital did AROM, uh, that's artificial rupture of membranes. Never would have done while, that. Uh, yeah, while at the time the baby seemed to be applied. After AROM, the midwife checked her again and could not feel any presenting part. The patient does not feel contractions and has not felt them for more than 24 hours. The patient is off Pitocin now for a pit break. Mm -hmm. So they're inducing her for a large baby. They break her bag of waters. They can't have a, they don't know what the presenting part is. Mm -hmm. She's on pit. She doesn't have any contractions really for 24 hours. She gets pitted. Now the pit's been on for so long that they're giving her a or break. it's too high, yeah. Right. The doctor's concerned for possible unstable lie. No shit. And if patient does not make change off Pitocin, he wants to do a primary C-section 
and then place a Bakri balloon as a precaution afterwards. A Bakri balloon is something you use for uncontrolled postpartum hemorrhage. It's a big balloon that holds about 800 cc's of fluid, and you stick it in the uterus and fill it up. He wants to use it prophylactically. Mm. Okay. I want this poor girl to have a vaginal delivery help, she writes. And then last night, I finally saw the message, and I said, I said, talk about a cascade of interventions. So many questions. How were her other baby? How big were her other babies? And what is the birth weight of this one when it's delivered? Because I'm assuming it had been delivered by then. Mm-hmm. Poor girl is right. And then she writes back. It was, as people listening probably know, it was awful. And honestly, I finally checked her. She was not seven centimeters. Her external os was four centimeters from the Foley balloon and a fingertip dilated up higher. She wasn't feeling contractions because she wasn't in labor. Yes, no. They ruptured her water. And after that, they said baby was floating. So they didn't want her up moving, concerned for a cord prolapse. This poor girl wanted an unmedicated vaginal delivery. She ended up as a gravita four pair of three with what? A cesarean section. With a doc who was fresh out of residency, concerned for hemorrhaging since baby was supposed to be large. And then she had been on pit for 24 hours. So he's so conditioned to not think out of the box that everything falls in the algorithm. So what did he do? He treated her prophylactically with TXA, Cytotec in the uterus, injected mm-hmm. at the time of the C-section, and methogen, and a Bakri balloon. Wow. Because he was worried she would hemorrhage postpartum. How traumatic, she says. Baby was nine pounds, three ounces. Her previous biggest baby was eight pounds, 11 ounces. Yeah, she so could have eight ounces less, I know. Yeah. She had plenty of room. She should never have A-robbed a- her. Baby wasn't ready. Her body wasn't ready. Nope. But they feared a large baby. Um, and she says, I actually don't think that the balloon, the cook catheter was ever up in the cervix because she was still only like fingertip inside. So um, this is one of those, you know, 50% of C-sections being unnecessary Yeah. that no one will ever admit yeah. was unnecessary. Oh, I, if it was me, I would, I would press charges or something. Not press charges, but you know what I mean? Like. He caused her to have an unnecessary cesarean. And all kinds of medications. And the baby probably didn't bond well and probably went to the nursery and all the other things. And for a estimated fetal, for a baby, that's normal weight. Yep. Yeah, that's right. tragic. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I didn't want to depress you. <laughs> Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com- and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. 
let's bring on our guest. Okay, great. Let's okay. Do it. All right. So we're gonna let her in. Okay. This is exciting. So I have to freely admit, I don't, I don't, I don't know her. So I'm really excited to. Uh... We're, get, we're meeting her for the first time. Oh, you don't know her either. No. But you got you got a gift from her, I and I did. And I didn't get a gift from her. <laughs> Hi, are we recording video or just audio? You're recording all of it right now as we speak. Well, this is candid camera, and you're you're stuck. All right. Okay. I would have bought you a gift. It's just that you weren't at that birth, but you're at a lot of other ones. So what what kind of gift do you want? You know what? It's a gift having you on and talking about your book and about the fourth trimester. I should have worn my necklace today. It's so beautiful. No, Thank I, you, you so don't, much. You don't need to get us anything. Of course not. You're, I know you're joking, but but nonetheless, we want to want to hear what you have to say. And so tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you've gotten into this work. Well, I, there's a few there's a few kinds of work that we could talk about, but I think what we're talking about is postpartum work. But the majority of the work that I do now is I help women recover from birth injuries, gynecological surgeries, and sexual boundary ruptures. Mm-hmm. And I do it hands in, hands on. So I'm a structural body worker. I'm a rolfer, and I'm a sexological body worker. And as a result of my own birth experience, which I had a home birth, in Rio. And I happened to have a very, what I thought was an extreme tear, but it took me a really long time to figure out just what was happening. So my symptoms were like, I had fecal incontinence and I was having crazy lower back and SI joint pain and really just a lot of discomfort in a lot of different ways that I'd never had before. Cause I came into the birthing process, very, what I felt was very comfortable with my body. I'd have been a yoga teacher for a long time. Uh, I was excited to give birth. I had a great birth birthing team. So I was really shocked at how much I was struggling with the recovery. And this was about 15 years ago. My daughter is almost 16. So 16 years ago. And I had lived in Boulder before I was in Brazil, which is where I gave birth. So I knew all about all kinds of alternative forms of health. I knew all I'd had internal pelvic floor work before I had a baby. And I just could not figure out why. What I was experiencing was so mysterious and foreign, and I wasn't able to get any kind of counsel about what was actually happening. So I went on a journey. I came back to the U.S. I was told by a doctor without an examination that I needed a full pelvic floor surgical reconstruction. I knew I didn't want that. So I figured, okay, this has to be more than a personal problem. I know that if anybody had me do a checklist, I would definitely be considered like postpartum depression, but I'm really only depressed because I have all these symptoms that I don't understand and that I don't know what to do anything about. So I just started searching and I, by coincidence or kismet, I got a job in Thailand. And while I was there, I started to learn more about the postpartum care practices in Thailand and Taiwan and Indonesia and Malaysia. I started getting some body work myself. I serendipitously also met a woman who became my mentor named Ellen Heed, who was doing a study on scar tissue remediation and postpartum care. So I got three sessions with her and most of my symptoms went away and then took a few more steps for the rest of my symptoms to to change. But then I realized, oh, this is once I started talking to other women about what was happening for me, so many women started telling me their stories that I realized, oh, this is like the kind of work that I want to do. So I became a birth doula to understand more about birth. I attended not too many births, like 35 births, both in Brazil and here. I was a medical translator in Brazil for expats who were 
giving birth there and didn't really understand the birthing system. And then I moved back to the US and then I started doing the internal pelvic floor work. And I did about 800 sessions in three years. And as a result of that incubation period and working so specifically on pelvic floor scar tissue, essentially, uh, that I realized my wait lists were getting crazy. I had practices in five cities. The wait lists were just out of control. And everyone was saying like, that's amazing. And I was like, no, this is actually really upsetting and troubling. And I'm not at all heartened by the fact that I have all of this work. I'm actually really mystified about what I could do to have a higher level upstream impact on this. Yeah. And so that's really been my question. And it's, I did a, I crowdfunded a fourth trimester vaginal steam study with Kelly Garza, the steamy chick really put in place, like what is postpartum recovery? Like we, we now have an extensive checklist for what could be depression, but do we really have a measure physiologically of what it means to recover? The gynecological books don't have that. Uh, and then I've, also crowdfunded for a Black-owned birth center here in San Diego. And yeah, really, just, I teach now online. I teach courses on sexual education, but that inclusive of birth health and, you know, pelvic health throughout the lifespan. And then my second book is, so my first book is called The Fourth Trimester. And my second book is called Call of the Wild, which is specifically how women heal from trauma because women heal differently than men do from trauma. And so using examples from my work and from my research. See, that's that's the kind of introduction I could never have done. No. <laughs> so so that's why we let you introduce yourself. Silly. So that, silly. I think this is amazing. You're I mean, amazing. You know, it's really amazing. You're right. I love what you said. This is not amazing. It's upsetting that you have so many women who are doing something that the body is designed to do and they're coming out of it. I, you know, my... My own bias says most of them are coming out of it because they're birthing in the hospital and dorsal lithotomy position by people who don't know shit about the pelvic floor, who are supposed to be obstetrical experts, but don't know anything. I mean, I, I know this can happen at home too. I know I've been called to come and repair third and fourth degree tears at home. Sometimes that happens. Had a few myself over, over the years, but there are doctors I know when I was training who consistently got third and fourth degree tears every, almost every time. And this is not something that's taught. So the fact is, when you say it's upsetting, it is upsetting. Yes, it is. And it continues to be. And unfortunately, as probably all three of us know, the birth outcomes aren't getting better. They're getting worse. So that's also upsetting. And there's a lot to say. And I'd be really curious to hear from your point of view, what you what you think about what those upstream actions are and, and how to create something that's different. I think that, um, so in my own case, apparently, I only had a stage two tear, but I didn't know that until I was three years postpartum. So while I was getting stitched, I asked my midwives, how many stitches are there? What direction are they in? What's happening? Because it was taking a really long time. And also I didn't have any sense of blame at all. I didn't think it was anyone's fault. I just was wondering what was happening. But because midwives generally feel so bad about tearing, it was like, they just kept saying, everything's fine. It's going to all be fine. And then it wasn't fine. And so because of my symptoms and talking with other people, I thought, oh, I must have had a stage four tear because I've never heard of fecal incontinence with a stage two. Like that doesn't seem to go together. Yeah. But then when I actually gave a presentation at a birth conference and one of the midwifery assistants was in the audience, she came up to me afterwards and was like, you absolutely did not have a stage four tear. You had a stage two we just used a suturing material 
that your body rejected and we'd never used it before. And so it didn't heal, right? Because your body rejected that material. So that's like, okay, but why did it take three years for me to understand my own situation when I was asking about it much earlier than that in a non-blaming way? Because to this day, I don't think it was my midwives were negligent. I think all of the time there's new practices that happen and it's normal. They got the suturing material from an, from an obstetrician and like, okay, somebody has to be the experimental person. Even that I wasn't upset about. I was just upset that I had no idea, like, what is going on? Like, and what do I do about it? Where do I go? I, what exercises do I need to do? I went to the physical therapist and she literally had an iPad in one hand and a wand, one of those like buzzing wands in the other hand. And she was like doing stuff while she was inserting it vaginally, trying to get like a responsiveness in my tissues. But it was like, she wasn't even paying attention. So Uh, I just aim to offer a different kind of care, but also to educate people on the kind of care that they might need. And uh, it's strange to me, even with something like pushing, where I, I really never had a client, whether they were doing their birth education with a doctor or with like, you know, childbirth ed out out of the hospital, they all say don't push. But I, there was only one birth out of the 35 I was in that people weren't doing directed pushing when it came even though all those women had been told don't push. But then in the moment of the birth, everyone's like counting and talking loudly and encouraging that. So there's just so many mixed messages that are happening. And I find it very unfortunate that the nervous system is put under so much duress at a time when it needs to be protected. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of reasons that I bought Bliss a present. (laughs) And... um. I have so many respected colleagues who quit midwifery during the pandemic. I have other senior midwives in my community, one of them who committed suicide in her 60s mm. after catching like 2,500 babies. She was living in like the back someone's back house because she didn't have enough livelihood to support her. And she did so much service work. And that's what was left for her as an elder. So... I don't know where the pattern interrupt is, but where I start and because I'm not in the medical system and I didn't go to medical school and I, I, this is not my framework. I don't even really spend that much time analyzing that. What I do is I spend my time with women trying to understand what makes it so hard for them to find their own instincts and to make decisions in accordance with those own instincts, including their birthing team. So, so many women come to me and they say, well, I would have had a home birth, but, you know, my husband felt really uncomfortable with that and we're a team. And so, you know, I wanted to go to the hospital, but I really didn't want to go to the hospital. And then what happens? They're they're feeling tons of guilt and self-loathing and all kinds of other things because they didn't actually go with what felt best for them. Why is that? What's happened in their nervous system prior? How can I help them come to a sense of repair? so that they can make a choice that's actually in favor of their biology and physiology. And I think the normalization of procedures, you know, the the slipping of the language to something that's a surgery, like a boob job, is procedure. The normalization of all of these kinds of interferences prior to getting to birthing time makes it seem like, well, it's just really not that big of a deal. When, of course, on all of our sides, it's like, this might be the biggest deal of your life. This might be one of the most important moments that you will never forget that may set in motion all kinds of other decisions and symptoms. 
it's it's hard to know how to get that across at a time when there's so much dependence on technology and uh, social media. You got thoughts. I know you have thoughts, but you go first. Yeah, well, I, I first I want to acknowledge how moved you were by sharing the story of this midwife who was not really honored during that time. And I just, you know, I could really feel that. Um, interestingly enough, I'm doing a project when I have the energy for it called the Bridge Midwives. And part of what we're doing is empowering other communities and then within our own community, honoring midwives as they transition out of their practice so that we have a ceremony to be able to tell them like, thank you for all of the wisdom that you and the service that you've had, because we don't have anything like that, you know, and to be able to honor those women, but what came to mind. And then I can hear the frustration, which I also share in how, what do I say and how do I phrase this in a way that I can get through to these women about the importance of this time. And I'm even going to correct you a little bit because you said it might be a really important time. And I, and I, you know, I agree with Ina Mae Gaskin, like whether your birth is positive or not positive, you're never going to forget this day. And it's wildly impactful into the rest of your life. And as you're pointing to also like your healthcare and how, I mean, your health overall and how your body is going to be physically after this experience as you experienced yourself. The work that you're doing is obviously very, very deep. And I think the deeper that we get and we get out of like the, um, all of these procedures and the medicalization and the standardization, and you start to individualize and go deep into the psyche and to the psychology, the mental state that a woman is in and help her bridge that it's, it's not easy. You know, it's not that like checkbox, right. And so I share your frustration and interest in these kind of dialogues of like, how do we impact this generation to help them understand? And we did a, we, we've done three podcasts today because we're together. And we were talking earlier about, you know, how breastfeeding at one point in history had become very unpopular when formula came in. And now 80% of women are breastfeeding. And I was like, gosh, wouldn't that be amazing if, if midwifery and, and community-based birthing became the majority again, you know, where that kind of shift happened. So those were my thoughts. Yeah. And to answer one of your many great questions is that the medical model is not about solving any of these issues. The medical model is there to serve the medical model. And they're not, they're not taught anything that you talked about, about the pelvic floor where, I mean, yeah, they know the anatomy, they know which muscle it connects to which muscle, but they're not, they're not, they're not taught about it. It's not important. The, when something happens like that, the resources for what to do, like when I was a resident, did anyone ever talk to me about pelvic floor therapy or seeing a body worker? Was that ever meant? No, it was never existed. The medical model causes problems. And the way to solve those problems is more of the medical model. In other words, you need technology, you need surgery, you need this, that. not not prevention, not let's learn how the cardinal movements of a baby come through the pelvis. And maybe if you didn't have a woman sitting in the, one of the worst positions possible, that maybe there would be more room for the baby to, to, to extend its head around the corner instead of blowing itself through the bottom. Maybe doing some prep, you know, antenatally 
would be very helpful. That's not something that's in the medical model. The medical model has five minute or 10 minute prenatal visits. How do they talk about anything like that? And then after you're done, you go home and you're seen in six weeks. And you know, you're right. No one talks to you. Everybody, they talk in a way because it's not that these people are inhumane, it's the system is inhumane. And so they don't have time to tell you, yeah, we put in these sutures, we did, this is what we did, this is what happened, and this is why it happened. And here's some things, resources we have, we're not going to just let you go out the door and, you know, see you back in six weeks with, you you leaking stool because you're, you're, you know, you either developed a fistula or because we, we accidentally injured your anal sphincter. And, you know, even though it didn't tear, the innervation to that area was, was, they're not going to tell you that partly because they don't know and partly because the system doesn't allow them the time to do it. And the, and the answer is complicated because the answer, you know, you Doctors only know what's in their box. They never look outside their box. And they have 95% of the market. How do you reach those people? And this is one way we do it. And you writing a book and you coming on and expressing yourself, this is going to influence people who are listening, who are then going to talk to their friends. And they may have a friend who has a problem with her pelvic floor after a birth, or maybe had some sexual trauma in the past and is worried about Vag exams or what's going to happen when the baby's coming, and they'll talk to them and then they'll maybe refer them to your book or whatever. But until the, the market forces, we talked about marketing earlier, mm-hmm. but until the market forces demand that this system be, be scrapped into the scrap heap of history, this is going to continue to happen. And the more things become big and corporatized, the more this is going to happen. You can do this and you got overwhelmed. And we talked about it. What if, you know, we have right now maybe 1.7% of the population are having home births with midwives. If suddenly we had 10%, we don't have enough people to do that. Right. Midwives would suddenly have to do volume right. medicine. And then they couldn't do an hour prenatal visit. And they couldn't do five postpartum visits on a woman over the next few weeks. Wouldn't have time to do that. So, you know, that's why the answer is complicated. But talking about it, it's obviously, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but it's the first step in solving, you know, this issue and for people to have the knowledge to know that, listen, the, the model by which you're cared for in the medical model isn't doing doing most people much good. And and delivering flat on your back with your legs up in stirrups is not is, is not how nature would do it. You look at any person or any other mammal when it's laboring would never choose that position. That position was designed by obstetricians to make it convenient for them to be able to see what was going on. That's where it came from. Actually, somebody said it was from royalty back in the, you know. in The, the perversion? Yeah, was that what it's called? The perversion? Yeah. Where they wanted to be able to see this thing happening. So they designed these chairs or whatever so that the royalty could, you know, could watch the babies being born. And, and, and that became the way women gave birth. And nobody puts a thought to it. It's, it's physiologically incorrect. And yet the, the uh, torchbearers of my profession laugh when midwives or women request to deliver squatting or on all fours or whatever. They, they don't know what to do. And they're the ones that sit in judgment of people like you or me or, or Bliss who say, most people are crazy. You know, you, you, know, you, you, know, you need to go through like the guy that diagnosed you without ever examining you. How do you do that? I mean, you can give an opinion, but you can't have that certainty. One of the things we talk about on the podcast all the time is, is, you know, it's not it's not our skepticism that should bother you. It's their certainty. And, you know, they seem so certain that, that their their methods are correct. And yet the outcomes are, as you said, 
quite upsetting. I mean, that's a very mild word you're using there. I would go, I would go a lot stronger than that. Maybe I also misspoke. Maybe this person did give me an opinion and not a diagnosis, but I think the level of alarm that I had at the time heard it as a diagnosis. Deserved better. Right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, when I zoom way out for me, like the biggest project that I've worked on this year is called Mother Circle. And it's an eight class experience that starts archetypally, goes to the body, goes actually to cycles, then goes into the body, then goes to birth, then goes to the nervous system, then goes to the mother line. And so it's an eight class experience, basically, that would cover like when people, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I posted something that said like, you know, underworld does not equal depression, right? Like a postpartum journey, you do usually do go to the underworld, but it doesn't mean you have to get stuck there. And it doesn't mean you're there alone. And it doesn't mean that you don't have other people that are in the upper worlds that are holding you in your experience. And so I'm training 180 people all over the world to lead women through this arc that any care provider could recommend, like send a woman to this place because there's absolutely no reason that things that are really practice wisdom, like breastfeeding, should have to be professionalized and that people should have to hire. Like, I don't even know about doulas anymore, honestly. Like, and I am one and people probably get so horribly annoyed with me to hear that I'm like questioning something that's supposed to be unquestionably useful. But I think doulas are taking, you're, we're taking people out of the pool to professionalize, to be midwives. People that would normally have to put in the time to become a midwife can do a shortcut to become a doula. And then people hire doulas thinking that a doula is something that's on the checklist that's like an epidural that's just going to make the birth easier rather than something that you're still going to have to do the work yourself. You're still going to have to have a baby. So it's true. My first book, you know, it is recommended at Kaiser and it's recommended reading in lots of doula trainings and postpartum and prenatal yoga trainings. And it's true that I do believe those things are helpful, but I also believe that birth and death are things that we're just going to have to make important to people that are not in that period. Because right now, the only people who care about birth and death are either birth professionals or people that are recently having, are going to sometime soon are going to have a baby. Like the people that normally read the fourth trimester are people who already had a bad postpartum period once. And now they're reading it because they know it's important and they don't want that to happen again. But the best person to read the book are like mothers and mothers-in-laws and partners and aunties and the people that would care for the person that just had the baby. Because it's an awful position to put some, to put a pregnant woman in or a woman who's just given birth to have to orchestrate all of her needs and receive the care at the same time. Yeah. And that's what, that's the position we put women in, in the birth space too, is like, you're supposed to occupy the, the healthy sympathetic side of your ner nervous system and, you know, defend yourself and, you know, tell people what you want and all this stuff. And you're supposed to have the parasympathetic letdown at the same time. It's physiologically impossible. Yeah. So we put people in like a nervous system double bind and then wonder why it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, that's incredibly smart. She is incredible. Yeah, yeah incredible. You, you're, you're a very impressive person. I don't know how you, you know, were you like doing architectural design at two years of age or something? Because, <laughs> because you, you really have a way of like seeing a problem and, and actually coming right at it. It's very impressive, actually. You're very impressive, Kimbo. Oh, thanks. Well, you're, you're impressive welcome. too, Doctor Stu. <laughs> so we have a new sponsor, Bliss. 
Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then of course they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30 day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their, their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. Me She's a, she was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com. That's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with a number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. I've been feeling this way lately too. Again, you know, because I like take a shower or go to bed at night or wake up in the morning or go on a walk. And I'm always thinking about how can I impact this? What can I say? What can I do? You know, it's just a constant like thing over the decades of watching things change too. And this push right now of like, women are still in the hospital, but we're educating them and telling them you can say no and you can advocate for yourself and all of those things. It's like, so you're fighting when you're supposed to be being able to relax and let labor take over and have other people hold that container for you. So my answer is always like, no, stay home, get out of the hospital. Have, yeah. You know, well, in this mix that you can have a lot of people wanted to hire me and they said they wanted, they're hiring me because they want a home birth in the hospital. I'm like, that doesn't exist. I, I agree with you. That's a contradiction <laughs> in terms. I agree with you. And I will absolutely not collude yeah. with this farce. And yeah. essentially that's why I stopped being a doula because there, I didn't want to go in the hospital. And I'm saying there are definitely a couple great doctors here. No questions about that. Um, and I really learned a lot from those doctors when I did work with them. Around here, most home birth midwives don't really want doulas around. They've got their midwifery apprentices. They've got their own team and it's not really a thing. And I was just like, I just can't do this anymore because I'm. people would say to me, well, it's better than it would have been if you weren't there. And I'm like, maybe, but is it better for me? Right. Because the toll that it's taking on me, is that fair? Is it fair for me to walk out traumatized? 
because I just watched the whole constellation of just complete BS go on that I had no agency over. Yeah. No, it's not. And no, it's not. And we you know just before you came on, we we read a letter from one of our, our listeners about this cascade of interventions that happened to one of her friends or clients. And and I I get very emotional about this sort of thing too, because you know, listen, and I are lightning rods for these kinds of stories. And I don't think they're I don't think that they're very rare. I think I think that these are the more, the far more common stories are these stories of trauma. And everybody tends to keep it to themselves. We happen to live in a population where people are sharing. But the idea that you as a as a powerless doula has to go to the hospital and watch, as some of our colleagues have said before, you know, witness scene of a crime or witness coercion or witness unethical behavior as a matter of routine it takes its toll. I, you know, I left the hospital for a combination of reasons, but that well, one of them was that they they were restricting everything that I knew that was legitimate you could do. They were coming up well, with- Well, yeah, and you, as a doctor, it. you have to break the rule to do the right thing. I mean, I've been in those births. I've been in a birth with someone where I'm like, oh, this doctor is going to get reamed for what's happening right now. Like this thing, this gift that he's giving to everybody here and to this family, he's going to take the hit for this. And in what culture does that make any kind of sense? And who's going to be there defending him? Nobody. It's just going to be like, oh, you're going to get this taken away and you're going to get that taken away. Yeah, it's, it's I wish not we could a... find all these good doctors and tell them to leave the hospital and start doing home birth. But the problem is, is that it's very hard for them to let go of the rock in the middle of the stream because they don't know what's around the bend, around the proverbial downstream. They would find themselves probably less rich, but more, but far happier. And and so what what is richness? What does that have to do if you go to work every day and you're and you're and you're miserable and you're you know you're not the captain of your own ship and you're being told how you're the one with that went spent 12 years in training and you're the one coming out being told how to practice and what you can do and what you can't do. The job satisfaction rate can't be very high and that can't be very good for their health. Just like you said you're a, you know you you're a doula you couldn't take it anymore. Doctors, unfortunately, they invest a lot of time and, and money and whatever to get to this point, not realizing because most most young college students are, you know, they're enthusiastic and naive as hell. And they think that I'm going to go and I'm going to do good things. And then 12 years later, they come out and they're indoctrinated into robotic technological loss of humanity. But I think that's culturally, too. It's not just in the medical world. I think a lot of people are just not standing up for what's right. They're just kind of getting through the day, trying to like, you know, keep things copacetic in their life so that they can enjoy the things. And well, it used to be used to be bliss that religion was labeled by by Lenin, I think, the opiate of the masses. Now it's it's like TikTok. TikTok <laughs> and Netflix and you know, five second, <laughs> five minute, whatever, just really, really short attention pan stuff, stuff, entertainment things watching cat videos you know i mean i i, I find all watch I, I find videos. i find them to be very entertaining okay <laughs> yeah take some of them i mean you know because it's a pressure cooker right here we are we are the, the... but this is what these are these are the new opiates of the masses if they can keep you divided if they can keep you busy you're not going to focus on the thing that the system that's making these people who are have sold their souls but they're making but they're 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 in power or they're or they're in control or they're making money from a system because everyone knows the the medical system which is what we're talking about here i'm not talking about a lot of the other systems mm-hmm. 
it's far worse off than it was 50, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It's not serving the people. It's not serving patients. Right. All right. It's serving its own system in so many ways. I mean, this is what the podcast is pretty much all about mm -hmm. every week. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I'm so glad that, that you came on, you're on and you're saying these things because it, it's affirming by the way, for me to hear you talk, because it's nice to not to hear it come from another, another mouth. But I just, I, I think the work that you're doing is, is amazing. And I'd like to know, like, how did you decide to write a book or two books or how many books do you have? I mean, Three. Three books. Okay. Um, how did you decide to do that? I mean, you're, you're, you're a mom. Well, I didn't think I could because I was a single mom and I didn't really think that it just seemed like an overwhelming task. And, but I did know that I have an ability to synthesize information. And like, for me, I can read a medical textbook. I knew anatomy really well, but I'm thinking to myself, if I already had pelvic floor work pre-birth and I can look, you know, anatomy of the female pelvis and netters and understand this, but I still can't figure out what's happening to myself. How's the average person going to make their way around any of this information? So, I mean, my book's kind of hilarious. There's one chapter on all of Ayurveda and Chinese medicine. <laughs> I had to synthesize these really important bodies of work in a way that I thought could be useful and synthesized for more people to read. And, you know, it was a long process, but it was I just felt like really it's, you know, you know, the three stages of a rite of passage from Genep, it's separation, transition, and incorporation is the third phase. And that third phase is when you, do you know this? No. It's super oh. cool. Yeah, okay. no, I don't, so I, I don't know. What every rite of passage has three phases. Mm -hmm. According to Arthur Van Genep in the, he did this research anthropologically. If you, you know, some people can't stand anthropology, but anyway, I think the model is interesting. <laughs> so the first stage of separation. So most people think of a rite of passage and all they think of is like the mountain climb, or in this case, the birth, like that's the, the birth itself is the whole rite of passage. But actually a rite of passage starts with a death or a separation. So you're leaving what you once were, you don't have your old identity. So it's really more like pregnancy is the separation phase. Mm -hmm. The second phase is transition. So that's like if you got circumcised or if you, you know, had to go across a big river or you had to climb to a mountaintop or, and there's always a, the body is the physical site of sacrifice. So there's usually marks left on the body in this phase of a rite of passage. The third phase is the one that's least done and it's called integration or incorporation where corpo in Latin is body. So it's when you bring it into the body. But what does it require? It requires a community. So it's the way, it's where you return and it's where you're able to share what happened with you and for you because it was known that you weren't journeying just for yourself. You made that journey for the tribe, for the community. And Van Genev said, if you don't have that, that's when you go psychotic. That's when psychosis happens. So you could really consider postpartum depression to be an incomplete rite of passage that the rite of passage wasn't, you could also, I would say that postpartum depression is incomplete postpartum recovery. There's all kinds of ways to see it outside of a mental health problem, you know, unresolved birth trauma is another good way to see it. But the incorporation phase for me was writing the book because it took me six and a half years to recover. And uh, I had to understand a whole lot of things that I thought I had understood through my yoga practice 
that I hadn't understood, which part of it was just about what it means to be a woman and that it does make a difference to have a female nervous system and a female body and be able to understand what that meant on all the levels of my system. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm -hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. I would love for you to talk a little bit more because you've mentioned it several times about the nervous system and you just pointed to it as the female nervous system. So in regards to birth and postpartum, um, can you talk more about that and tell us how that weaves into the work that you do? Yeah, so this is like my thing. So great. All right, <laughs> take a deep breath. Okay, we're ready. Uh, so when most of us learned about the nervous system, what we learned was sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest or digest. Mm -hmm. And we learned, this is what I learned in high school biology. It's also what I see all over the internet out there a lot of the time. So then you have to go like, oh, wait, so sympathetic, wait, fight or flight, that's bad. But sympathy sounds good, but right. Oh, no, but this is the bad one. And then parasympathetic, <laughs> rest or digest. Oh, yeah, that's the good one. But what we learned through polyvagal theory in the last 30 years is several things. One of those is that thinking of the sympathetic and parasympathetic like that is actually apples and oranges. So the sympathetic system in safety is what wakes us up in the morning. It's the car accelerator. It's healthy drive. It's what makes us be able to focus on something and move towards it without getting distracted. Sure. Our parasympathetic dorsal system, so back body system, dorsal fin, subdiaphragmatic, in safety is resting or digesting. In safety is sphincter opening, uh, fluid release in some cases. Sometimes that's a, it's a mixture of both. 
We also learned that this isn't an on and off light switch. It's more like a, an audio soundboard. So you're never all on one side or all on another because we're adjusting levels of tonicity and levels of activation and responsiveness. You could say in labor, dilation is a parasympathetic dorsal function and pushing is a sympathetic function. It requires action. It requires activity. It requires engagement. Dilation requires a letting go. You can't force yourself to dilate. You can't try harder to dilate, but pushing requires something else. So in the animal world, those two things exist and we could call them a predator and a prey. Predator energy is sympathetic energy on the fight side, but we have the flight side. So under threat, we have fight or flight. On the flight side, that's prey. And then when we go to parasympathetic under threat, it's no longer rest, digest, sphincter open, it's freeze and collapse. So if you have an epidural, you're putting your body in a freeze state. It's if you want to be, right? You don't want to feel the thing. So you're under anesthetic and same if you have a cesarean, you're putting yourself in a freeze. Well, if you've ever been in a freeze state before, if you have elastinous connective tissue, uh, if you are predisposed towards a parasympathetic dorsal response, then that experience might impact you differently. It's also why women say, well, God, I don't know why I didn't say what I wanted. And it's like, well, you were under anesthetic. So your nervous system was already tending towards freeze, which is an immobilization, which makes it harder for you to say something or to move. Your body knows that it could not fight or flee because you're immobilized. You can't move your legs. So you, you don't have access to those same responses. Now, those are just those two tiers. But what we have as human primates, which almost no other primates have, is a social nervous system. Now, of course, animals are super intelligent and they have all kinds of social networks that we couldn't even conceive of, like ants and things like that. But there is a part of our nervous system that developed for maternal bonding. And it's now called the social nervous system. That's the ventral vagal system. So it's the heart is a part of superficial fascia and it goes up through the throat, up behind the ears. And the optic nerve operates as a part of it, but it is, but the optic nerve is not a part of the vagus nerve. But we're constantly reading the fine muscles around the face and the mouth to know what level of safety or threat we're experiencing. So it's the breastfeeding range, the 18 inch range. And we're reading these expressions all the time unconsciously to know if we're safe or not. Now, when that functioning is working well, that's our oxytocin system. So that's the warmth that comes through when you feel a sense of belonging, when you feel like you can be, you can stand out and still not be rejected. But what people don't understand is on the flip side of that is that you have also a response in the social nervous system under threat. When we're threatened in the social nervous system, some people have started to hear about this response that's called fawning. Fawn is when you approximate a threat because it's a known factor. So if you're in a position of less power, like you're in a hospital giving birth and you naked and you're horizontal and everyone else is standing up and clothed, you are in a position of less power for many reasons, partially because you are horizontal, you don't have clothes on, you're not the decision maker, all kinds of reasons. Then fawning is really, it's basically being nice. It's, mm -hmm. it's 
saying the thing that you know will remain in rapport and proximity. This is really what the Me Too movement was based on. People are saying, why are these women going back to this hotel room? Well, because if they go, they know what to expect. And the threat that's closer to you is less dangerous than the threat that's roaming around out there. So if you're super, people go to me, I was so nice to the doctor. I didn't agree with anything they were saying. I didn't want it to happen. And yet I was so nice. Yes, your physiology knew you were overpowered. And so it chose to do that because also doctors do punish women. I've been in rooms where it happens. Yeah, yeah. So you know that they can retaliate against you. So you better be nice so that your outcome is potentially better. But then women blame themselves afterwards because they don't understand that it's their physiology. And the culture says, oh, you're manipulative. But it's not a manipulation because your rational brain, your neocortex didn't choose it. Your back brain chose it and your nervous system chose it. And on the flip side of that, you have fitting in. Fitting in is camouflaging. So you don't want to stand out. So you do whatever it else, whatever else everyone else is doing, you do because you can't tolerate the conflict or the separation. Yeah. So that could be you choose the same birthing scenario that everyone in your family tells you you should and that, you know, the your friends think is the best because they're telling you that because you you don't have what it takes to stand in your own, to stand your ground, to stand in your own authority. So I call that Jaguar energy because I have a long story with that. And it's not because I did a fucking medicine journey. It's because <laughs> I lived in Brazil and I had an experience. But anyhow, I call that activating your inner Jaguar. Now, Jaguars don't hunt all the time. Jaguars hunt when they're hungry and they're feeding their cubs. The rest of the time they chill. They lay on trees. They hang out in their cave and like play with their cubs and they hunt when it's time. So what I found in my work is that because women tend to be habituated into these responses of freezing or fawning and fitting in, that the healing direction is towards a healthy fight response, towards healthy aggression. Now, if you have intact self-protective self-defense mechanisms, you usually don't have to use them because your nervous system already communicates that. So I'm not saying I teach people to go in the hospital and argue with their doctors. That would be ridiculous and stupid. And I never did that as a doula because it's the worst possible scenario to be in. I, if you have those responses available to you, you don't usually need to use them because you just are communicating already to not be messed with. And you make choices in accordance with knowing, like giving birth, that you would know I don't want to have to be in an assertive place when I'm giving birth. I want everybody else to do the protecting so that I can let down. And you would have that knowledge of yourself and of physiology ahead of time so that you could set yourself up for a successful scenario where there's a collective nervous system that's happening around you and within you also, but around you to enable you to occupy that place when you need to and to feel safe enough to do it. Yeah. Does that lead into our to our mutual friend story and why you sent me a necklace? It could. <laughs> it just yeah. made me think about her community of yeah. people that she had around her. And well, I did tell her birth that... story without her name on the podcast already. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So... And she, she, this person we're talking about is a very close friend of mine. And I've talked about her on other podcasts as well. So 
I know she doesn't mind because she calls me and listens and tells me, but she's an extremely special person. And I don't know how much you got into who she is and her specific story, but she has a handicap and she has nerve damage in her pelvis and in her, her legs. And she's also blind in one eye. And as a result of having this nerve damage in her legs, she can't feel the soles of her feet and she often can't feel her legs. So you can imagine there's a lot of incomplete fight and flight responses in her legs because for much of her life, her legs are not in her complete proprioceptive awareness. So she came to Jaguar already and that Jaguar is my courses, already an incredible human being. And like, I always can't even understand why she had more to learn from me, but she says she did. She already had masters in performance art and she was told she would never walk and she's now a dancer, incredible dancer and director and choreographer. Um, But I was nervous for, she had a home, she was born at home, which is like incredible to begin with. Like she had some hard knocks in some other ways, but like fortuitous entrance. She was born at home herself. She had already had one home birth, but now as a result of Jaguar, we had done a lot of work. She had, she said she could never feel pleasure in her pelvis before she did my courses because she just have much sensation overall. And so not only did she put in place like a very robust social network and I gave her a mother blessing. And then I went back with another elder and did another event in her house. And then I went back after she had the baby, after you were there and your team were there. And she really took to heart the amount of support that it takes for a mother, but also for a family to have what they need at this time, to have the amount of food, the amount of company. Um, And she also said to me that she was able to really follow her instincts and, and use a lot of sounds and hear a lot of sounds that she'd never heard before and have other women that were willing to make them with her and that were moving in this space with her and responding and knowing when she needed contact because of the nerve damage, she often needs something, she needs pressure or something to push against. And instead of saying like, either giving up, like, well, I'm already like this, so I better go to the hospital because there could be a problem. And I, I'm sure she's considered high risk for all kinds of reasons. And also not saying, well, I can't feel my whole pelvis, so I better do this. I gave her a session beforehand because she wanted it, not because I thought she absolutely needed it, but she was able to restore. And this is the amazing thing. And I'm sure what also the both of you get, it's like, sure, this could be one of the most damaging things you've ever gone through, but it can also be one of the most reparative, restorative, redemptive moments of your life. And so every day that someone chooses out of that is like another opportunity lost, not for themselves only and not just for their baby and not just for their family, but for the whole community. Yeah. And so that was to me, one of the beauties of that birth was like, you know, they invited an uncle and he's in the other room and he was communicating with me afterwards. So they weren't, they didn't give me the news of when the baby was born, the uncle did. And then I could ask him, how are they doing? And when would be a good time for me to come and What do you think? So that I'm not having to interrupt them and they're not having to micromanage the every part of the situation that I was already in touch with their parents so that I could also, you know, be an intermediary and just so many levels of support that can come together as as such a galvanizing, memorable moment to return to when things are challenging. Which life is. And this is the way that we 
used to do it. You know, we used to birth in villages and we had a community of people and we, you know, we weren't only doing the birth alone, but we also had all of that support in raising our children and being there for postpartum. And, you know, that's just not how most people are setting themselves up these days. And that leads to so many other things. Just maturation, right? Like becoming more mature because this is, we don't, we live in a culture where we don't live in a culture with mostly adults anymore. It just, Mm -hmm. we just don't like, they're just not, I'm like looking around, like, where are the adults? I don't like, who's doing the parenting? Where are the adults? Who's setting any kind of limits? And one of the things that she mentioned to me in her birth, which really was remarkable because I'd had an, I have another client friend student who had everything, has everything to be able to have beautiful physiological birth and didn't, and didn't because the midwife was afraid. And basically she just didn't have anyone in the space that was will, like, she was the one that was holding this kind of dream and this, like, I can do this. And when her, I can do this dropped, everybody just gave up and was like, let's go to the hospital. Like no one said, no, this is what you wanted. No, this, you chose into this, like you got this, no one would go on that ride for her with her. Mm. And you did that in this birth. And she told me about those moments. And like, that is like people, that's like, we're not willing to forget about birth. That's just like, not what we're willing to do for each other and with each other in general these days. Like, don't overstep. Don't talk about someone else's kids. Don't, you know, don't mention when you see something that's, you know, car that's about to hit a tree let's just all look the other way the emperor has no clothes but i'm not gonna like no skin off my back i'm just if you want to have a hospital birth you do you everyone's you do you you do you it's like well somebody's gonna have to be the elder that's like no like this is the fire and we're in it and we're doing it together and like it's happening (laughs) that's not exactly how i said it but no yes we do we do have to um be willing to actually just did a Instagram live a couple of weeks ago with one of my favorite doulas and talked about so much that you're talking about, which is that, you know, doulas are in this position to be able to speak up when these people are telling us what they want for their birth and say, you, everything that you're telling me is not necessarily going to be supported by going into the hospital, but because of the training for most doulas and because of the cultural conversations around support a woman where she's at, don't, you know, don't rock the boat. You want to like respect her decisions, which is true. We do. But we also want, like you're saying, to kind of challenge people a little bit to expand their mind and to be able to maybe see things that they haven't seen. And, you know, this goes full circle kind of back to the midwife that you were speaking about, like the acknowledgement and the support and the love and the respect for our elders is missing. And it takes a lifetime to gather the wisdom to be able to walk a path and and have these people come to us and say, this is what I did. This is my belief system. These are the things that got me here. You don't have to agree with this or choose this path, but this is available to you as something that's possible. And we do have to be willing to take the risk to say the hard things. And you know, we've only been with you 35, 40 minutes, but I can hear in the work that you're doing that you are not afraid to, to make those statements and to, to challenge people to look at things in a different way. And that I really honor and respect. And again, as Stu said, you know, just the fact that you're here sharing this knowledge is going to make a huge impact. And we really appreciate you being here with us. You wrote down a lot of notes. 
Yeah, I'll tell you that this is a very rare podcast for me where where I feel like I am a student. Oh, I definitely feel that way. And yeah. you are the teacher, Kimberly. I get so much to learn from you. <laughs> I'm just I'm inspired by you. Just just the way you think. I mean, I was taking notes like I was in a lecture back in 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 high school of all the things you talked about, and I, and I. I don't even know where to begin. Sometimes I am very, well, very rarely I'm speechless, but, <laughs> but your eloquence, your grace, your passion, uh, your knowledge, your wisdom are remarkable. Don't, you know, I mean, we, we have some very interesting people that we come across in, in our podcast and in my professional career. Uh, there's no one that, that's more interesting than you. And I watched you get choked up. I'm very emotional right now. I've got a lot of work to do. Uh, I'll be talking to you. <laughs> great well i mean i would love i would love to support i'd love to learn from both of you i love i think my i have a daughter who's in 10th grade and so probably when she's out of high school then a next iteration of how i serve will happen because that was another thing you know i i there's a lot of birth workers that become birth workers because of their own birth experiences especially postpartum doulas but they have young children and it's not a good time to be a postpartum doula because you're leaving your own kids to take care of someone else's kids and it's just not a sustainable model and i actually do have you know ideas for ways that i think that this could go differently but i don't have all of the thrust to keep all of these different directions going right now but uh yeah i'm i'm here and uh, however I can be of service to you or yeah, just anything, let me know. Well, I think we're all, we're all working towards the same goal. So, you know, it's good to be able to start to, to percolate some of those ideas and passions and then the ways that, that our work can overlap and support each other can be really helpful. And you have inspired us. Yeah. yeah we're, today. Com we're coming, we're essentially coming out of a second dark age. When it comes to medicine, and I do think that that the thought process that you expressed and we advocate for are growing, and things are changing, and it's making the medical community quite uncomfortable. When's and, the first dark age? Well, there's probably been more than one, actually. Oh. <laughs> right. First Which one are you talking was, about? Because you oh, said it's the second dark age. What was the first one? What's when was the dark the dark ages? I don't oh, know. the actual dark ages. The actual dark ages, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I was trying to be figurative, not as literal as, as okay. that. but I will just say that, that when the medical model gets uncomfortable, they don't, they don't reevaluate, they push, push back. So we can, we're going to expect more technology, more corporatization, more impersonalization, but there's a community growing that's not going to settle for that stuff anymore. Yeah. If people wanted to find your work, how's the best way to get in touch with you? I know that your books are on Amazon, but yeah. Uh, and also like nervous system stuff I shared, it's in the first chapter of Call of the Wild. And that chapter you can read for free at KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash chapter. Right. So if people wanted like a review because, you know, that is a lot of information. Uh, and then, yeah, my website's KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. My Instagram is the same. Those are Great. the best ways. And they can find you to work with you personally or see the projects that you're working on or to find. I'm not really working one-on-one. -on -one. I'm training a few people apprentice style. So sometimes I'll do intensives where I'll have people come for work and then I'll have someone I'm training at the same time. But that will be, if I have any in-person events or yeah, the, the courses that I teach, those things are all on the site. And if anyone wants to contact me for other reasons, then they can contact me there too. 
Thank you so much for making time to come on with us today. I know that our listeners are going to really love this conversation that we had. I feel like we need another one. So we might be calling you up again to kind of just continue this dialogue. Are you all in Utah or in Santa Barbara right now? We're in Santa Barbara right now. Dr. Stu came and visited me. And I'm sorry that our paths didn't meet like in person, but I'm up there. So maybe they will. Good. Good. Okay, sweetheart. Thank you so much. You You can drop off. Have a wonderful day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I know, right? She did say take a deep breath before she started. Oh, she's brilliant. Yeah. So I think uh, I think we should probably just end it for today. And, okay. And hope th- you guys liked that. I did. Yeah. Again, awesome. support our sponsors. Support Kimberly. I'm going to buy Call of the Wild. Great. Because I got I want to read that first chapter. I have to read it again because I, I love it. This whole thing about uh, activating your inner jaguar that is that mm-hmm. is something that's whole the whole thing about the nervous system that she went through. But I took notes. It's I know. really cool. Yeah. Uh, okay, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 